You're listening to the Master Photography Podcast. Welcome into the Master Photography Roundtable, part of the Master Photography Podcast Network. You are joined by thousands of photographers listening to the show, all on the same journey to master their photography. I am Jeff Harmon, the host for this episode, and with me is Brent Bergherm. How are you, Brent? I'm tired. I spent so much time last night working on this issue we're talking about, but I'm ready to go. It's going to be, I think, a really good conversation. So I'm actually... I'm doing I'm doing really good, but yeah, I've I've spent many hours figuring these issues out. All right, so we're we're probably we're going to probably have a little bit of controversy to start with. Yeah, <laughs> I, I imagine the listeners are going to get. There's going to be some listeners going to get kind of uh, amped up about this first part of the conversation, which is totally fine. I I get it. It's it's a, a part of being a creative is you also have passion. And, right. uh, and so we, we love the passion. I know I love it. it it's what makes me f- love photography so much, I think, is the passion that, that it brings into my life. And, uh, and I love that. I love that part about it. All right. So for this episode, for the first half or maybe three quarters <laughs> of the show, depending on how the, the conversation goes here, we're going to talk a little bit about shooting Fuji and what Brent is doing there. And then uh, the last part of it, I'm going to share with you briefly because I've already covered this over at Photo Taco, not in a podcast episode, but with a, a blog post over there on phototacopodcast.com, as well as a YouTube video, which I haven't done a whole lot of them, but I am ramping that up just a little bit. I'm going to be adding some tips and tricks kinds of YouTube videos out there. So if for listeners, it's, if you've been long, I've, been, I've had lots of listener feedback saying, I loved the podcast episode for Photo Taco, but I really wish you did video so that I could see it as you were talking through it. And I'm finding a little bit more time to be able to to do that. And so I'm, I'm going to be adding videos to the YouTube channel. It's pretty bare right now. There's only a couple, but it's going to build up over time. And, and I hope that's going to prove to be a, another resource that listeners can go to for for help, especially with more technical sorts of problems. So the, the last part, I'm going to talk about five things that you should go check out in your Lightroom settings so that you can make sure your photos show up after you round trip from Lightroom to Photoshop and back. Uh, make sure that your photos are there. So we're going to close up the show with that kind of discussion. But let's start with the main event, the big, the big part of the discussion that we want to have today. Uh, shooting Fuji. So Brent, after shooting Canon for many years, you are giving Fuji a serious try. So I want to know what did you buy and what made you decide that you wanted to go and really give Fuji a serious try? So I got the Fuji X-T3 and I've got the 23mm f2 and the 14mm f2.8. And that's it for lenses right now. Uh, I wanted to give Fuji a try for a long time. And I actually have had an X-T10 that I've been able to shoot uh, off and on for, you know, a little while. But uh, usually I just haven't shot it just because, you know, I'm a, you know, I'm a Canon guy. That's the camera I use. And, and I just never had a reason to ever, ever tag this additional camera along. But I started really getting inspired to want to bring the camera along with me more often uh, to whether I'm going just, you know, on a walk downtown or on a walk somewhere uh, for a brief afternoon with my wife or the family or whatever the case is. 
so often I I just know, you know, I'm just like, man, I'd love to take that camera, but it's so stinking heavy. And so I would let that be kind of um, a determining factor of whether or not I would shoot. And in so doing, that led me to uh, have these huge droughts, I guess you could say, of just times where I just don't shoot. And I don't like that. You know, if I'm going to be a photographer, I need to be a photographer. I need to be shooting. And so I, I spent probably close to a year considering, do I really want to change? Do I really want to change? Or am I going to try and be patient and see what comes out with Canon mirrorless? And I do like the EOS R. There's everything, you know, pretty much is fine with that camera as far as I'm concerned. Uh, I don't think that there's anything wrong in that direction uh, for the way I want to shoot and what I want to shoot. But I was I was drawn to the Fuji simply because it's smaller. I do like the styling as well, for sure. I love that classic styling. The first camera I ever owned was actually a fairly classic looking camera. It was made by Contax, and I got that back in 1996. But uh, ever since then, I've been shooting either Nikon or Canon. And so for the last uh, 16 or so years, I've been shooting Canon. And so that's just, you know, I've got a lot of Canon baggage, shall we call it, in my mind (laughs) that's wrapped up with that. And is it about, you know, leaving it all, you know, leaving all of that behind? Do I want to just add another camera so I can have this, you know, lighter weight, this type of additional camera, or do I want to replace something completely? And I figured I wanted to replace it completely because, as everyone knows, I'm a traveler and right. I love to head out there. And when I was in Hong Kong last year, the weight on my shoulder was definitely one of those things that was bogging me down too. And so, it, I think my just overall experience of shooting would be better uh, with a smaller system. Uh, I'm, I'm not as concerned anymore these days about the fact that it's APS-C size versus full frame. Right. That's that's virtually non-existent for me. Uh, as I did my comparison last night, I went out last evening and shot both the Canon and the um, and the Fuji together. And there's definitely some good things. I was like, you know, this Canon's obviously really good and there's a reason why i loved it uh-huh. uh but the the biggest thing was the size that was that was the biggest reason for me to change the the thing that had it because i knew it would change up not only my creativity but also just the fact that i'm hopefully going to be more creative simply because i have more opportunities to be creative i'm going to take advantage of more opportunities to be creative yeah, and I don't think that's just for travel photographers like you. I, I think yeah. every type of photographer, they kind of long for the, this smaller size. Uh, they want, like, like you know, the uh, the senior portraits or the wedding photographer, all of them. Right. They'd all like to have this burden lifted from them where they have these, they're wielding these really large lenses, heavy, heavy lenses, and, right. and get to something that's lighter. Um, I mean, I've even read a lot about some people that have done had a photography career for 20, 30 years, and then they have to stop because yeah. they they have a medical problem that results right. from carrying this kind of heavy, heavy gear around for a long time. So, well, like, yeah, you're exactly right. And I just uh, experienced a similar issue. I'm not going to blame it on the gear, but I would blame it more on stress at work. At least that's what the chiropractor said. Uh, but for the last three weeks, I've been dealing with a pinched nerve that has slowly been... Uh, d- diminishing. But for about two weeks, I lost the use of my right thumb. And 
producing these podcasts even, you know, I'm just sitting at a computer doing, you know, normal stuff, whatever, has been a huge challenge just to get these things out. And are you kidding? Gripping a camera, especially the Canon, not going to happen. So uh, when I started to finally be able to grip something again, and I had that Fuji by that time, I was just like, this is all right, because it's so small. I don't fear I'm going to just drop it. It's going to fall out of my hand. So there was that kind of a thing happening for me too during this time. So I, I had a lot of appreciation start happening uh, with with bringing the Fuji on. And I guess there's one other thing that kind of sort of I, I appreciate about switching to is, uh, and it may sound silly, but people still think if you have a small camera, you know, people that are, you know, not photographers yeah, possibly, yeah. Uh-huh. if you have a small camera, you're just not that, professional yeah, kind like, of thing they can't, or whatever. They can't visually tell the difference very well between like a point yeah. and shoot and an actual camera that right. it can still do very high quality because right. they associate the size with the quality. They do. And yeah. so I'm much more approachable actually. And I love that. So people have, as I've been out shooting, whether it's just this little comment oh, have fun doing this, or oh, make sure you go see the session side, because you know, they might think I'm a tourist. I'm like, I've lived in this town for 24 years. <laughs> I'm not a tourist, but thank you. <laughs> right. and, and then I had another coworker ask me, I had given a presentation of some images of Plitvis Lake at uh, Lakes at Work, and when he saw me, because I actually carried the XT10 to graduation, and so, you know, I'm all in my regalia with my gown and my cap and all that junk that we have to wear uh, for graduation. And I got this little XT10 with me in uh-huh. my hand. And he's just like, uh, you know, did, did you have that? Was that what you used when you shot those images? <laughs> I was like, well, no, but I could have. <laughs> right. And, and so he was like, oh, okay. So so it's um, it's um it's been a good thing, I think, with the switching over through the the experience of shooting has been wonderful actually uh-huh. and it's it's just the the post production that I'm actually having challenges with okay so let let's talk about that a little bit then you you haven't been shooting it how long have you had the the Fuji XT3 so the XT3 has been in my hands for I want to say not more than 2 weeks uh but I shot the XT10 for about 2 weeks before that as well uh somewhat regularly uh, I'd only for that camera the XT10 I only had the 18 to 55 lens uh, for and then for this one uh, I've decided to limit myself to that 14 f2.8 and that 23 f2 because that's just another part of shaking up my seeing my mode of seeing and how I see the world photographically and I think that has been a really positive benefit for me by limiting my choices and limiting my uh, abilities to uh, of capturing something. I I don't have to when I'm coming up to a scene. I don't have to discern everything and think about everything. I have these two viewpoints that I have to think about, and that's it. And that's been quite liberating. And so I really appreciate that. Um, But yeah, that post production that that has been more of a challenge than I expected. Well, and. And to be honest, I, I think that's going <clears> to <throat> that's going to be a challenge with pretty well any switch you make like this. Probably, and yeah. Because I mean, you've been shooting Canon for how long? How long have you been shooting Canon? Uh, Canon digital since two thousand seven, so that's like about twelve years. Uh huh. So, and that's a long time compared to like you know four weeks 
off and on not right, solid right yeah right. there's just you can't compare those two things like that's just totally unfair it's it, and, like and that's yeah exactly what i'm trying to do is really give it its due diligence right i feel i'm trying to do that anyway right and i'm going about that the best way i know how and i've talked with dan bailey he's a longtime fuji shooter and i even think he's a, a fuji ambassador uh, I could be wrong on that, but uh, he, I have an interview with him coming out on Latitude. It actually lasted an hour and a half long, but it's a really good conversation about expectations like this wow. and what, you know, all this letting go of some things and understanding that it's, it is a new format. It is a new way of thinking more than just the act of shooting. And it really was helpful. And I'm not saying I'm completely all in as far as, uh, I've solved all my problems that I that I ever experienced with it, but you know it was really helpful. And as I continue working through this process, it's uh, certainly an exciting process. I'm having a lot of fun with it. But uh, yeah, hopefully I can get to that point to where I'm I I feel absolute confidence in the ability to create the images I want to create. Okay, so it's obviously early to be able to provide like a a full opinion on right, Fuji. Right. Not possible yet. You just don't have enough time with it. You haven't worked through. All of the things. And and it has to be the case that, I mean, it, it's not Fuji itself that's really probably the root of the problem here. I mean, maybe some specific things that you've got to figure out about how you might have to do something a little bit differently than you're used to because of the way the technology itself works. But there's there's countless photographers that I've, I've interacted yeah. with who just love their Fuji. <laughs> like, there's, yep. there's some serious passion there. Uh, Del Rogers, friend of ours, comes to mind. He he's a Fuji shooter, been a Fuji shooter for a really really long time. He loves it. Jim Harmer, um, also friend of ours, he shot Fuji for a while and and really liked it before he sort of got out of photography altogether. Um, heard from tons of listeners. Our, our yep. Facebook groups are filled with people who are Fuji shooters and love the platform, love the product, love the images. Everything is working well. And that's not to disparage anybody using Fuji. If you're using Fuji and you're getting good, good results, that's incredible. Keep it up. Yes. Keep going. Yes. Don't this, this conversation isn't meant to say we don't like Fuji. That's not the point of what we're talking about here. Part of what we wanted, I wanted to talk through with this and why this was interesting to me, switching camera systems is tough. I don't yeah. care what brand you're going from or to. It's hard. You've you've shot the same system for a long time. You're very used to it. And, and even though you may not think about all the ways that you've become accustomed to the platform that you're shooting, the camera system you're shooting, it's a real thing. You've you've learned like even something as trivial as the words that are in the menu. I, I've heard of a, for sure. example, about Sony's menus and how they're so hard and so difficult to work with. And when I've rented Sony, I didn't find it that hard, but the words are definitely different. The way that they describe things, the the names they give to specific features, they're just different enough that if you're used to something and you know exactly what the menus means and what the words are in the menus, then you go to a new system and they, they call it something different. You're like, I can't find anything in these menus. I don't know what this stuff is. And that's hard. That's really challenging to go through, especially if like, you know, the sun is setting and it's going to be gone in two minutes and I have two minutes to figure out how to get this one <laughs> setting I want to do. That's it's, it's a struggle. It's a really a problem. There's also things like you had the feel for the camera body. You've kind of mm -hmm. got the built up this muscle memory about where, right. where things are, even if you don't realize it, if you don't think about it. That's part of the whole deal is you become so used to it, you don't have to think about it as much now. And you're, you're able to focus on 
when you're very accustomed and used to a system, you're able to focus on the act or, or what it is that you're doing, how you are trying to be creatively create a, make a photo instead of, okay, now where's the button that does this thing so that I can change it and, and get what I want. And, and it's just, it, it can feel clunky, cumbersome, and difficult. Even though the product itself that you're switching to may be just fine, it's, it's tough to work through that switch. Absolutely. And I, I think, you know, as you're going through some, you know, the, the idea of muscle memory and the like, you know, I was out there shooting uh, on the Oregon coast with this camera and that's all I took. I didn't even take my Canon with me to have that insurance. I just wanted to be, you know, giving it its full, you know, uh, approach kind of a thing and not be relying on that uh, crutch of, of the Canon system. And I was trying to change the ISO and I was just like, you know, looking in the menu and I'm looking uh, for that button because that's where Canon will have it. <laughs> and of course, it's got that big stinking right. dial right in front of me. And it was like, duh. <laughs> <laughs> right, felt, right. felt so silly. And, but that's just, you know, it, it took me three seconds. You know, it, was, it wasn't that big of a deal. It was just like, oh yeah, that's, that's right. And honestly, that becomes something that I think most photographers eventually find a strength with Fuji. Sure. That the, the buttons and, or the knobs, the, the dials that are on the camera have a really good feel to them. And they, they love it being that way instead of kind of the older style with a single button or menu system that you have to go through to, to make changes. Yeah. And another strength that I really liked, which is probably available on other mirrorless systems, I just don't know. But when I'm in manual focus, the... Uh, the, the scale of where I'm focused shows up in the viewfinder. And then it also has a little additional item that shows me what my depth of field is. So if I change my aperture, that thing gets wider, it gets narrower, and it shows me precisely what my depth of field is. Uh-huh. Ah, it was awesome. Right. I was like, oh yeah, this <laughs> this is really good stuff. Because being able to know and have that little visual cue, that little graphical cue that helps me understand not only this is where you're focused at, but this is what your relative depth of field is as, as far as the, the focus range of this lens. Uh, that was just great. And then when I did astro shooting, putting that sucker on infinity, no brainer. It was so easy. So it was, it, there, there was definitely some awesome things uh, with the act of shooting that went really well. Right. Okay. So let's talk about the specific challenge that you are having. And this is, again, this is, Someone who's coming to Fuji who's fairly fairly new to it. Fuji has a very different style of sensor. Um, yeah. and, and the way that the images look in post-processing can be really different. Lightroom is, is known to struggle with Fuji, with, yeah. with raw files from Fuji. They, they just, the raw processor built into Lightroom or this part of Lightroom is not as good at interpreting the files that come out of that sensor because it's a, a little bit different kind style of sensor than almost every other <laughs> kind of camera that's out there. So, so describe for us what your challenges have been and, and what you're working through there. Yeah, so it has to do with that X-Trans sensor, and that X-Trans has a different color filter array. So if you look at the bearer filter on your standard camera, it's very even and it's red, green, red, green, red, green on one row and it's blue, green, blue, green, blue, green, green on the other row. In that process of demosaicing where they add all colors to every pixel then, Lightroom does a fantastic job with a bearer pattern sensor and not so good in general with 
an X-Trans sensor, but it also depends on exactly what you're shooting. Right, right, right. So I've had some flowers and some other stuff like that. Like I And, and just last night, I went to my uh, local park called Whitman Mission, and they've got an old... Uh, wagon that is a replica from what they used to come out on the Oregon Trail because the Oregon Trail goes right through here. And the wood texture, the wood paneling on that is beautiful uh, on both the Canon and the Fuji system. And the rope that holds down that canopy on top, the texture coming through on the Fuji is gorgeous. And I'm talking in Lightroom here. Uh But when it comes to the metal rim around the wheel that's where it starts to fall apart a little bit on the Fuji system. So what I've found is when you have smoother items that have a little bit of texture in them, you know, like glassy water that's reflecting, no problem. Uh, But these smoother items, or when we get to sand especially, that's where I really had a problem with it, uh, where it would just look absolutely horrendously terrible, the sand did anyway. And that's one of the biggest problems I had with it. You know, I'm talking with these other people and they're just like, you know, it's a different way of doing it. You have to process differently. I was like, I can't process this thing anyway. (laughs) And I'm testing out Capture One and On One as well. And I finally downloaded Luminar and that, that particular stand image finally looked like sand. I was like, even the JPEG out of camera didn't even look like sand. So... This is a little sand dune on the Oregon coast, and it was backlit, and I had, and I posted this in the Facebook group, so many listeners who have been there know what I'm talking about. And so I split the the image with the shadow part versus the the highlighted part, and even the, the JPEG that came out of camera was just looking very... A lot of times people say wormy. The the JPEG right. was processed enough. The worms weren't how I would describe it, but they were blocky worms. And then the noise, if we can call it that, I guess that's the only way I could know to call it, in the shadow area was just really horrendously, just very, very gritty noise, just sticking out like crazy. Uh, but it felt like processing issues and not just noise. You know, noise tends to be fairly subtle, and you definitely know there's the differences, but they tended to be subtle. And I just had, uh, it, that was just a really big block for me because I was like, you know, if I can't even get sand to look like sand, this is a problem. Uh, so I've I've been trying to look at different subjects and different other things. And when I photographed a sea stack, so I got pretty close to some rocks there on the Oregon coast as well. And the standard processing in Lightroom made that rock feel like a, a clay texture rather than a rock texture. And then I noticed when I increased the sharpening, it just went all, it was terrible. <laughs> That's a technical and, term there. Yeah, it's exactly yeah. right. <laughs> now, thankfully, my MO is usually to not do any sharpening in Lightroom. Uh-huh. So I'll do some, uh, you know, to quote, make it look good, make, you know, for, for taste or to, to make it look good for screen viewing or what have you. But when I'm printing, that's my ultimate goal usually uh, for, you know, that's what I, I should say, that's what I consider like the the king standard, you uh-huh. know, the the de facto standard for ultimate quality is if I can get a good print out of it, then I'm going to be satisfied. Right, right. And if I can get a good print, I know I can get a good screen view. So usually I don't do the sharpening 
in Lightroom, but I do use that tool, that function usually, to even just determine when I am pixel peeping, to look at it and say, is this even worth it? Can I get a good print out of it? That sharpening function has helped me determine whether or not it's even good. And so another thing that's happened, though, is I, I think Adobe has changed the standard processing. Because in previous versions, the standard value used to be 25 on that sharpening slider. Now it's 40. And it, at least it seems it's changed to me. Uh, uh, when I looked at it, I was like, why is that at 40? <laughs> and everything I've been bringing in now is at 40, and so that's a lot stronger. And so I'm seeing these worm artifacts, and it can happen even on a, a leaf, like a, a blade of grass on, on a leaf. And it can happen in, you know, if I have wave action going in the water, it can happen there. Anytime I've got these granular type subtle details going on, whether it's sand, uh, some wood textures, but rock for sure, uh, dirt, anything like that, that, uh, or, or, you know, hammered metal, that kind of a thing. That's where I started to notice these things. And so I'm just trying to really pay attention to how I'm processing uh, these in Lightroom. And then I'm also using Capture One, and I'm starting to learn Capture One. And there's a lot of great things about Capture One that I'm liking. <laughs> you may so, have another switch you need to make, not only the camera. <laughs> you might and need that's, yeah. yeah, and, and that's, the, that's kind of the thing that I wasn't prepared when I went into this. Sure. I wasn't prepared for I, I thought I could get everything in Lightroom because maybe I was a little bit pompous, but I was like, you know, I know Lightroom like the back of my hand. Right, I've been right. using it since 2007, along with my camera, my Canon cameras. And that's where trying to, trying to release myself uh, from that call, brings me to question, and I, and I told Dan Bailey in my interview with him, I'm not married to Lightroom, but... Then I'll, I'm going to take it a step further here. I'm, well, I'm not married, but it's like I'm engaged, <laughs> right? <laughs> and and it's <laughs> my goodness. There's some great things. I love actually how uh, Capture One deals with uh, print preparation. Uh-huh. Oh wow! I'm not going to go into the details right now. We can do that in a later episode. Right. But that is so slick. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. And I, if Lightroom could do that, oh, that would be amazing. But um, so, yeah, there's and, and then just the, the processing engine of Capture One does uh, does a lot better for sure right. um, on most images. There's still a few images like that sand image. It, it fell apart in uh-huh. Capture One. So that's that's where I'm at is just. Now I'm looking at the entire process. It's not just the shooting. I've already mentioned the shooting aspect has been something I just love it. And I'm trying to wrap my mind now around, okay, do I have to switch in order to be satisfied? And then if that's the case, am I willing to switch? Right. Because that's just a whole nother, <laughs> a whole nother scenario, a whole nother opening of sort of Pandora's box in a sense, because there's so many changes that are going to happen with that. Uh, I like to say I'm not opposed to the change to to Capture One or something else, but uh, thus far Capture One is is the leader for me. Uh-huh. But um, yeah, I, I, I did not did not expect that portion to to be uh, part of this discussion, part of this exploration, I should say. Which I, I think is something that most photographers should probably expect. What, no matter which system you're changing from or to. Um, they're going to process differently. Now, this, yeah. this one happens to be probably a little bit more extreme because of the way the sensors are so different. 
Yeah. And Lightroom in particular really struggles with the, the X-Trans sensor. Um, in fact, if, if listeners are interested in a little bit more explanation about that, I have a Photo Taco episode, podcast episode about this where I explain the Bayer pattern and X-Trans and what's going on there and um, around the, the Lightroom Enhanced Details feature, yes. which they added specifically to address this problem because they, they knew that their raw processor doesn't do great with Fuji cameras and uh and it, the enhanced details is in my mind not a great solution either because it's an extra step like you right you have to go and do this to every photo it takes a long time to build this uh dng file that processes things a little differently and and tries to to leverage the x trans sensor correctly so you can go listen to that episode i'm not going any more into the the technical parts of that if you're interested just go over to photo taco podcast and and search for enhanced details and uh, you'll be able to, to find that episode. Yeah, but, and I did use that. And in some images, it's it definitely rescued, if you want to call it that. Uh-huh, sure. But like you said, it just it's another step, and it creates another file. It's yeah. just like, you know, I, I'm trying to simplify my life. <laughs> yeah, they, they don't even have it so that you could do, like, if you, you are Fuji shooter, and you know, I want to do this on every single one of my photos, right. you can't do it on import. You can't make right. it happen on import yet. You have to import... And then go and and uh, right click and say enhance details and it's just painful. It's it's not a great solution. I, it's it feels like the they're trying it out. They're just Adobe's yeah. trying out, figuring out what can they do. Maybe eventually switch over so that when it's when you're importing, it'll say, oh, this is a Fuji, uh, a Fuji image on import. I'm just going to use the other method for bringing in the image instead of the traditional raw processor that they've got. Who, who knows? But that would be great. Yeah, that that might help um, that because most Fuji shooters that I know, they've abandoned Lightroom for this very reason. They just this it just doesn't process things. And again, it's it's not just Fuji where this happens. If you switch from Canon to Nikon, the way the colors render is different. Right. It is not the same. So when you're very used to a workflow that you have inside of Lightroom with the current system you've got, if you switch systems, you should expect you're going to have to figure out it may be less extreme than we're talking about here, but you're going to have to probably figure out how to adjust your workflow uh, at least a little bit to, to get to the images and, and the style that you're used to creating with the current system that you have. There's kind of a switch up there. Exactly so. right. And with the, the thing that I did where I'm getting these prints out, <clears throat> excuse me, that's another challenge I'm having in judging the prints. I can't judge color. I can't judge you know, a, a variety of things. I need to be looking purely at the idea of detail and sharpness and what those subjects are actually looking like as far as do I see the worms, do I not see the worms? And so that's right where I'm at now. Actually, I've got uh, a print out of Capture One on the Fuji that I'm going to compare to a print uh, from processing through Lightroom. And then I have the Canon also processed through Lightroom. And I'm going to be going through uh, these images and doing that later today so that I can just, you know, know what I'm looking at right. and getting better, <clears throat> excuse me, hopefully getting a better idea, a better snapshot of just what this all entails, what the switch all entails. And if I end up returning it, you know, it's it's going to be because the whole holistic approach is not something I'm willing to undertake 
because I've, as I've already said, it, the the whole idea of shooting with it, I just love it. And it's uh-huh. just amazing. Um, I'm really excited about the shooting aspect. So a, as we look at the scale, it's definitely tipping that direction. Does that outweigh and, and is it worth it for that rather, you know, to, to do all these changes on the back end? That's what I'm deciding right now. Yeah. Okay, so I just want to say it one more time because I know we're going to get tons of feedback about from the Fuji shooters out there. We're not disparaging Fuji here. This is not a bag on Fuji kind of episode. It is more the transition between systems yeah. that we're talking about. If someone's got advice, let me know. I am <laughs> right. all ears. You know, I yeah, I've been shooting professionally for twenty some years, and this is a huge thing for me. You know, I think people might expect that I just have all the answers, and I've also been teaching for twelve years. I know I don't have all the answers. <laughs> uh, you know, it, it's especially fun when a student in class, you know, they they think they're know it all, and this one time they actually do know something that I didn't know. It's like, hey, that's awesome. I'm glad you brought that up because I didn't know that. And then they're surprised because, you know, they'll they'll think that I'm all offended because, you know, I was corrected or whatever. Uh-huh. If, if someone's out there that has something that can help me uh, streamline this or otherwise um, uh, otherwise have, have better uh, experience with this, especially on the post-production side, I am all ears and I welcome it. Sure, because so you, you really, you like the physical shooting of the camera enough. Yeah. You'd really like to make it work. You like the size, a oh, lot of the objectives love. you're yeah. loving. You just got to get through this post-processing hurdle. And if, if someone can point out how to do it, then that solves your problem and that'd be good. Absolutely. Yeah, my, my Absolutely. own experience with Fuji. So Fuji sent me the X-T3 to shoot a high school basketball game with uh, right. you know, last late last year. And um, and so my own experience was kind of the same. I, I loved it for the most part. I loved I liked shooting with it. I didn't have the post-processing challenges that you're talking about. It's, it was a totally different thing. I was shooting basketball. So yeah, it's yeah a subject, different subject tends to be fine. Yeah, yeah. So, so it, it turned out just great. Um, I liked shooting with it. I'd love to give it a go and, and do it. I just, so the, the reason, and I've talked about this before on the podcast, the biggest reason I'm staying where I'm at, number one, it's working for me. Like there's no reason, there's nothing pushing me to, to change to something else. I don't have to, it's, it's all great. I'm working just fine. Yeah. I would, it, I, I'm with you, Brent, that there's been times where I have gone now it's been with my family usually, and they they hate it when I bring my camera. Yeah. So uh, so that pushes me to not bring it most of the time, rather than than the the size of the camera. But the size of the camera has played a factor. If we're gonna go do some big long hike, and I love doing that. We love going. My family, my kids, some of my kids kind of dread it, but but right. um, <laughs> but we go, and they we we make them come with us, and you know for sure bringing in the cameras they're not in, but. Um, I even think of it myself like, oh, well, it, that's so much weight on my back. I'm not sure I want to anyway. So mm-hmm. um, so it, that definitely is would be a benefit. If I could switch to something that was a little lighter and smaller, uh, it wouldn't be as big of a burden to take it with me. And maybe I could get stuff shot a little faster um, and my, you know, as my family's waiting so that they don't have to wait as long. But regardless... Um, you know, my experience with it has been fine. Um, but that's the reason I'm not switching has nothing to do with any of this. It's the cost. Um, yeah. I, and for me as a hobbyist, what it would mean to me is I'd have to sell off all my current gear first. I'd have to sell the current gear and be without a camera and then go and, and buy the new gear. And that would cost, you know, I wouldn't get out of the old gear enough to cover what the new gear costs. And so I 
that's going to stop me from switching. I just, the, and, and all the time and the effort and the energy it would take, I'd rather go out and shoot instead of work, deal with it. So yep. that's what's keeping me from switching to anything. Um, even though I'd love to really get my hands on a, a lot of different gear and, and just go have fun with it. It sounds so appealing to me. Um, but it, you know, it's it, in the end, we, at least Brent, do you, do you feel the same way? The gear shouldn't be a major part of how you're producing it, like the, the quality of your images. No, that is completely correct. I am I'm long a, a proponent of the idea that f- pretty much gear doesn't matter. And the only asterisk, you know, caveat I have to that is so long as it allows you to create the images right. you want to create. Right. And, and that's where, you know, we've talked about that in different ways here throughout the podcast, uh, throughout the years on the podcast. And that is to say, you know, don't upgrade a camera just because you feel you need to upgrade. Upgrade because you have a specific reason to upgrade. Right. And so I'm cross-grading, if you want to call it that. Because I had a specific reason. I wanted a lighter system, a much lighter system, because I could have just held out and, and or just, I should say, just bought the Canon uh, EOS R uh-huh. that is lighter than my 5D, and it is smaller. Uh-huh. Uh, and they just released uh, or announced, I should say, the 24 to 240. That looks really tempting to me. Sure. But if I were to compare that to my Fuji, it's still uh, going to be a bigger system, uh, physically larger, and... You know, is it that much of a difference, bigger, whatever, you know, it's, it's, it's probably very similar, especially in weight, because the Fuji is not terribly light, but it's definitely smaller. Um, so it's, it's, uh, I, I don't know, I just, that, that whole part of uh, that, it was a specific issue that I wanted to address. And so that's why it was worth it for me to at least try it out. Um, you know, B&H, I don't know how long they're, how much longer they're going to give me for <laughs> a return window, but um, I'm trying to figure it out by the end of this week because I have a big road trip coming up and uh, I, I need to, uh, I need to take something with me. Obviously I can take my Canon with me, but uh, I'd like to take something small with me if I can. So uh, yeah, time is of the essence on this one. Yeah. Still. You have to make a choice. Yeah. I mean, I'd love to say, well, just, Go cold turkey and take the Fuji. Don't take the Canon. And, you know, that'll really help you figure it out. But it's yeah. then, then the return it, policy. It, it, yeah, it's all about the processing, though, the post-processing. Yeah. If, I, if I can get this figured out, I want to be so happy. So. <laughs> there you go. All right. So, <laughs> listeners, if you have suggestions, and Brent's already tried a bunch of stuff, but if you have suggestions to, of how Brent might be able to uh, get a little happier with the post-processing options, be sure to let us know. Comment on... We're going to go put a post in the Facebook group about this, and you can comment on that. Or on the website, we're, we make show notes for yeah. all the episodes. So you can go on the website, and you can add comments there, too. Love to have you go and, and uh, check that out and comment what kinds of things Brent should be looking to do. He's probably tried a bunch of the suggestions you'll have, but you know, go give us the suggestions. Let's, let's see what Yeah, suggest them anyway. I, I'm, I'm all ears, and you know, someone may say it in a different way sure. that causes me to think something else. I'm like, oh, yeah. You know? <laughs> right. So uh, any type of insight, absolutely, is welcome. Excellent. Okay, let's, I'm going to just quickly go over these, these five tips that I've got, five things that you need to check. Brent, have you ever had it happen where in Lightroom, you, uh, you've done like, you know, the pre-work to get the photo ready. You, you'd said before you, you only do sharpening in, in Photoshop. So go into Lightroom, go into Photoshop, edit your image. And then when you come back, you're not traditionally looking for the image there, but have you ever seen it not show up? 
Oh, yeah. Okay. You betcha. And that can be frustrating. (laughs) And it's just like, what? (laughs) Stupid thing. So we had a few questions in the Facebook group on this. And I know I have answered questions, you know, over the years. We've, we've, We've had this topic come up. It seems like... You know, it's a, a newer photographer when they go in there, they use it for a while and then all of us and, and it works just as it should. You you go in the Lightroom, you edit your photo, you bring it, you round trip into Photoshop, which means for those that don't know, you either right click and do edit in Photoshop or you can just hit like control E or command E to, uh, to take it into Photoshop. It will load it up in Photoshop, the image, exactly how you edited it in Lightroom. You can do a bit more processing in Photoshop then with some of the advanced tools that are there. And, and then when you close it, save it, you, it should show up in Lightroom right there next to the, uh, the image that you just edited. Um, so you have both versions. And that's one of the advantages of using the Adobe products. You, there's this really nice integration about how that's supposed to work. And it doesn't take long before a photographer's like, wait, that used to work. Why? Where's my image? I don't see it now. They go back into Lightroom after they saved and, and closed out Photoshop they go into Lightroom and they don't see the edited, the Photoshop edited version of the photo that they just edited. So if that's happened to you, here's five things that you should check. And I've got a PhotoTaco uh, blog post about this that you can go check out at phototacopodcast.com. And I'll put a link in the show notes. I also, this is like I mentioned, I created a YouTube video about this so that you can visually see me walk through this process and what it would be. What was interesting was I I knew some of the things you had to do to change it. And so I thought, well, that should mean I know exactly how to make it happen too. I should be able to change some of these settings and then I should be able to see that this happens. And it was a little bit harder to make it happen than I thought, but I did. I was able to make it happen and I show you in the video how it it, uh, didn't work. So here's the five things. Uh, Just real briefly, if you want the full details, go check out those resources either on YouTube or phototacopodcast.com. So the first thing that you have to check um, is the sort order, which is most most photographers, I think they skip over. They don't even realize the setting is there or this this, uh, little detail is there in the library module. But it's important because it also dictates it dictates the order of your film strip. So at the bottom of in Lightroom, when you're in there, there's like little thumbnails of your images at the bottom of the screen. It's called the film strip. And that's it. The order that the images show up in there is determined by the sort order that you select in the library module. So even when you switch over to the development module, the same order is dictated by the setting and you can't actually change it in develop. It's not shown in the develop module. So you have to go back to the library module and just above the film strip, kind of towards the the middle bottom of Lightroom is this thing called sort order. And the default option, I believe, is file name or no, I think it's create a date. Anyway, um, what happens is if you change it to something else there somehow, and you know, I don't, since most photographers don't even find it, I'm not sure how you're changing that order, but if it's something other than create a date or file name, you can end up having the newer images that come back from Photoshop. They're sort of banished to the end of that film strip and won't show up next to your photo. So it's there, it's in Lightroom, it's in your catalog, 
but it's not showing up right next to your photo because of the sort order that you have in Lightroom. And this will make a lot more sense if you either look at the blog post or uh, check out the YouTube video because the, the visual is a, a big thing here. All right, the next setting to check is there's a, actually a stack with original preference setting. So you can go into preferences and there's there's this little checkbox and I, I have the exact screen in the blog post, but they can find it. But there's a little checkbox that I believe by default is checked. Um, if it's unchecked, then you can have your original image in that film strip that um, is separated from the photoshopped image when you come back in the Lightroom. And that's that's where it gets super confusing because you can see your original image and, and it's the photoshopped version is not right next to it. With this checkbox checked, and I tested this quite a bit in, in creating these tips, um, at, you still may end up having your photoshopped file get kind of banished to the far right of your film strip. But when you go back in it into Lightroom after it changes, after you've saved, your original image will be right next to it at the end as well. And Lightroom took me to the end of the film strip when I had that checkbox checked. So by default, I think it's checked. It's, it's on. If it's not checked, you're gonna wanna you're gonna wanna enable that so that you have a better chance of having your photos show up where you think they should be. Third one is smart collections collections or library filter. So any of those things, if you're using those, can impact what photos you see and they can make it so that you don't see your Photoshopped image at all. Like even though it's been cataloged and it's in Lightroom, um, when you're using a smart collection or a collection or a library filter, you, you're you telling Lightroom what images you want to see. You're, you're establishing kind of a, think of it like a maybe a, a search you're telling Lightroom to search and, and only show in the film strip the photos that meet the criteria of your search. And if you have a, I, the way I made it happen in the video was I created a smart collection where uh, edit time was part of the filter. And, or, uh, well, anyway, yeah, edit day, I think it was. Anyway, it, I, I defined a filter that I knew would make it so that when my photo came back from Photoshop, it wouldn't qualify to show up because the filter said not to show images that were that had those attributes. Uh, so hopefully that makes a little bit of sense. Again, the YouTube video or the the blog post will help you more. And, and so that's another another way that this can happen. If you're in a smart collection, um, some types of regular collections, but most of those are fine too. And if you define a library filter, it may be that the current criteria of the view you're looking at doesn't qualify for that photoshopped image to show up. Um, another number four, you don't want to use save as or export in Photoshop. I mean, you can, but if you do, the image that you just saved or exported is broken from that connection between Lightroom and Photoshop. It is not going to be something that gets pulled into Lightroom. So you want to use save and the, the best way to make sure that, that you keep this link between Lightroom and Photoshop when you're round tripping is just either close Photoshop when you're kind of done Close the Photoshop itself, and then when Photoshop says, do you want to save the file, just say yes. Or uh, you could hit like the little X on the tab for the image, and and that which is going to close the image out. And again, Photoshop will ask if you want to save, and you just say yes. Um, something like doing that is probably the best, but you can just do save, file, save. Don't do save as, and then go back to Lightroom, and it should show up there. So those are the first four. The fifth one is, is kind of a weird edge case. It's something that I bet most of you will never run into. It's pretty rare. 
And it has to do with kind of a folder getting their its name changed where the case got changed. So if you had the folder was called July 2019 and the J on July, you accidentally didn't uppercase. It was a lowercase J and you decide outside of Lightroom, I'm going to go change this and make it so it's an uppercase J. That could cause some weird problems to happen so that Lightroom initially looks like it's okay. And then when you round trip, the file Hmm. doesn't show up. So um, I documented that. I I point to a uh, feedback post in the Photoshop feedback forums where they outline kind of what to do about that. But it's a super edge case. So most of you probably will never run into it. Uh, So those are the five things to check if your photo does not show up in Lightroom after you've round tripped through uh, Photoshop. I've I've got a sixth one to add. Okay, tell me. So this has happened to me. This is what usually happens to me. And that one with a save as, that I actually have gotten that to work where it'll recognize it, uh, a different iteration of the image, um, and it'll just recognize it uh, back in Lightroom. But I can see how that can still break it. Uh, But anyway, uh, when I first import the images and I get right to work, and I get to work, and I go into Photoshop, and I do some work in Photoshop, and then I uh, hit the command S to save it, and it doesn't show up, and it's not in the film strip, and it's not anywhere. It's not the end of the film strip. It's not anywhere. It's because by default, when you're in the library module, under the upper right-hand corner, there's an item called catalog, and there's different things that you can preview. So you have all photographs, so on and so forth. Well, one of them is called previous import. Oh, right. That is selected by default. And obviously, your image in Photoshop was not part of that import. Gotcha. So, you have to navigate to the folder, and then you're going to see it. I am going to go add. You were right. That is when I should have made sure I, I added to this list, because that is... I turned that off, actually. Um, maybe that's why I didn't think about it. That's yeah. one of the preferences I change. I don't... I hate it when it switches to previous import um, yeah. on import. Sometimes I'm doing imports while I'm working on photos and I don't want my view to all of a sudden change just because I went to start an import. So excellent point there. <laughs> yes. So I turn this off. I, I don't, I change that setting, but I am, I'm going to add that to the show notes and I'm going to go change, update my, my article. So that there's the sixth <laughs> one. Thanks Brent. That's perfect. Yes, you bet. And then if you don't end up seeing that sort order that he was talking about, uh, it happens, it shows up just below your photo in the library module. And when you're in loop view, not in grid view, uh, I'm sure it happens in grid view as well, but yeah, same place actually in grid view. Um, but I was looking in loop view anyway. If it does, if it's not there, uh, right below it, there's that darker gray line. Go all the way to the right, and there's a down arrow, and then you can have uh, sorting be checked, and then that's where you have the options. Then you can choose capture time, added order, et cetera, et cetera. There's so many different sorting options there. Right. Okay. Perfect. I'm glad you had that. Okay, let's let's close up the show here. What uh, what's your doodad of the week, Brent? So my doodad is something really simple, but I have come to really rely upon it, and that is the Pixel Pocket Rocket Secure by Think Tank Photo, and I just love the alliteration there. Yeah, <laughs> uh, both in Pixel Pocket and then Pocket and Rocket. I mean, they they were brilliant in naming this item. Uh, the Secure is what adds a few zippers, so the cards don't. I don't think they would fall out anyway, but they don't accidentally fall out. And it's just a card holder. And uh, previously, I have i don't think I've ever used actually a, a dedicated card holder. I always used 
little pockets that were part of the bag, or I have this little board that has elastic strips on it, uh, and I can just slide it underneath an elastic strip. Uh, I've used that and whatever else. I decided finally to to kind of get normal, I guess, with my card storage. And it's just a soft-sided little fabric thingy, but I love it. It's It's great for keeping my cards organized, and I can actually remember, you know, I just flip a card over if I've shot it. Right. Yep. I, I just flip it over. You know, how, how stupid easy is that? Whereas yep. if it's swimming in my bag somewhere, I have no idea. <laughs> so it's really great. Uh, it's less than 25 bucks. Yeah, you can buy it anywhere. So uh, Pixel Pocket Rocket Secure. I like that. Perfect. You just like saying it. <laughs> I do. <laughs> All right. Mine is, I, I've suggested this one before, but I'm going to repeat it because I use it and I love it and it works well. That's the Western Digital My Passport external hard drive. So you can get a four terabyte sized external hard drive for a hundred bucks. Oh, now this is amazing. I know it is. This is not the super speediest hard drive ever, um, but it's fast enough. It's USB 3.0. So, you know, if you if you have a Mac and you're going to do USB-C to USB 3, um, this is going to that'll work. And that that's going to be fast enough for sure. If you're out on the road and you want to be able to have expand your storage um, in, I mean, this is meaningful storage Four terabytes is a lot. Mm-hmm. Then this is a very inexpensive way to be able to expand your storage and make that much better. So the Western digital, my passport external hard drive, we'll have a link in the show notes to it. So you can go, go get that for about a hundred bucks from Amazon. All right. We're going to close up the show here. We're going to remind you that master photography podcast, where you can find the show notes for this episode and everything else that's going on with master photography, our Facebook group. If you have not joined You can just search for Master Photography Podcast, and I'm going to remind you again, you have to answer that question about a name of the host on the show. If you don't, it's an immediate decline. We are not going to let people into the group if they don't answer that question. It can be Brent, or it can be Jeff from this episode. We just want to make sure listeners are in there. It's not bots or spammers. Um, We've had to banish a few people, actually, for doing like salesy stuff in the group, too, so we you know, keep it on topic. If you're going to post in there, we'd love to have you post in there and interact with with the show and and the community. We have a, a good sized community in the Facebook group, but keep it on photography. Keep it on the things you're doing. And I also want to mention that if you want to share a photo, we don't want you to do that as a in the main feed of the group. We uh, we'd rather have kind of help and and technical topics or suggestions for the show, other kinds of discussions be the main feed. What we want to do is have you fate every week. Erica creates a new thread for uh, for sharing photos, and you just share as a comment on that photo. It's really obvious what it is. It's the the let's see photo of the week or something like that. I, I can't remember the name she has for yeah, it. Yeah, I think so. But uh, you just you post as a comment there if you want to share your image, and everyone knows that's how it works. And and we have lots of people viewing those comments and and checking out the photos. So if you want to share it, you want to get like a little bit of feedback on your photo. That's the way you do it. Not in the main thread. And we we have the main thread for other other kinds of topics. Uh, you can find my stuff over at jsharmanphotos.com or phototopicalpodcast.com. You can search in the show notes of photo 
phototacopodcast.com too. Easy for me to say. I should be able to say that really easily. But yeah, but, um, yeah you can search there. I've worked really hard to make the search be something that's really valuable, be able to find the show notes. I've even made it, I've made adjustments recently to make it so that search bar is front and center right up at the top if you're on the desktop or on mobile, either one. If you have a question that you need an answer to, there's a really good chance I've got some uh, you know, detailed information over there on the website. So if you have fo- technical questions, especially go check that out, phototacopodcast.com and search over there to, to find it. Um, and then I have my Instagram and Twitter and Facebook stuff that uh, the links that I'll have in the show notes. Brent, where can people find you? My main website is just my name, brentbergherm.com. And I've got a couple of things I want to really uh, highlight. The first one is an Oregon Coast workshop uh, coming up pretty quick. So take a look at the details there. And um, I've also decided, I don't have the details on the website yet, but I'm going to do a, a, another attempt at having what I might call an ultimate adventure. And that is, there's another total solar eclipse happening in Chile. This time it's December 2020. So I'm doing the research right now to see what it would take to take a, a small group of people there. Uh, so hopefully that can work out and uh, I should have those details up within a week or so. Uh, LatitudePhotographyPodcast.com. That's my personal show. And I've been going like crazy on that with weekly episodes for the last, I don't know how long. And I've got them uh, planned out. I'm going on a a big road trip here shortly, uh, doing uh, actually printing workshops in Boise and in Denver. And the Boise one is pretty much sold out. The Denver one still has some seats left. I do have details on the Denver one in on my website so you can check that out if that's something you're interested in joining up and learning as a crash course one day printing crash course it's gonna be like six hours of just diving into all sorts of goodness in printing and i'll teach you everything from the photoshop techniques uh all the all the stuff you need to know so if you have at least opened an image in photoshop you know enough to uh, be dangerous in printing and uh, invite you to to look that up and I'm in the various socials as well. Just search my name and you'll find me. Very good. All right. Well, thanks. Thanks for joining me, Brent. We're oh, it's, talking yeah, about this. fun. Good luck on the, the Fuji raw processing. Thank Hopefully, you. Hopefully uh, that will turn around and make it so you can keep it. And uh, we're so glad to have all you listeners. Thank you so much for listening to the show. We really, really appreciate it. We'd love to have you tell someone else about the show too. And if, you, if there's a photographer out there that that uh, is not subscribed We'd love to have you share that the show with them and, and have them subscribe. That really, the more subscriptions we can get, the more we can keep the show going. So please, please help us with that. We'd love it. And we'll see you again in another seven days. Bye.